the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. Now, if you're a regular attender or a member here at First Baptist, you know that our normal Lord's Day liturgy is marked by verse-by-verse study of God's Word. And right now, Pastor Perry is leading us um, through a study of the, of the book of Acts. This morning, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us away from that study, and we're going to take a more topical approach to the, uh, to the message uh, this morning than is normal. And, and I'm not going to abandon God's Word by any means. Uh, but we will not be in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to be looking in, in a topical sense um, on this subject. You must be born again. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And just to be forewarned, it is a lengthy reading this morning. But it is well worth our time, investment, to get the entire context of, of the text before us. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and of his sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, we, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not with him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus said plainly to them, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha Martha said to him, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, 
She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had, had, had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the God, our Lord, will stand forever. You may be seated. As I was thinking about the subject for the message this morning, this idea of being born again, I was reminded of a, a historical event. Now, many of you in this room will not remember this at all, but some of us in this room are old enough to remember it. Our pastor won't remember it. He wasn't even alive when this took place. Although he tends to remember things that he wasn't alive that happened centuries ago, but this isn't quite that long ago. But in 1976, a man by the name of Jimmy Carter ran for the presidency of the United States of America. I remember I was a teenager, just so you'll get a little bit of historical understanding and at that time, Carter was virtually unknown in national politics. He had served as the governor of, of, of the state of Georgia for a year, for a term. Uh, and he was a, a dark horse candidate in a Democratic nomination. But Carter would go on to win that nomination. And in fact, he would defeat the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, in the 1976 presidential election. Now, some of you are nodding. You remember that. It was a bit of an upset, in fact. Um, and Carter will be remembered, if you study your history, some of y'all maybe have studied this in history, Carter's remembered for a number of things. He, he would be remembered as the president who would pardon the Vietnam War draft evaders. That wasn't popular in a lot of places. Uh, he would also be remembered for the Camp David Accords, where he bartered peace between Egypt and Israel. That was a pretty big deal. Uh, and infamously, he would be remembered for the Iranian hostage crisis. Again, those of us who are old enough remember those days well. I, I remember those days. And uh, However, 
He was known for something else, especially early on when he was running for president and early on in his presidency. At some point in the presidential campaign, Jimmy Carter declared that he was a born-again Christian. And the secular media went nuts. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. They were, they were dumbfounded. They, they, they were amazed. They didn't know what to do with this guy. What is he talking about? What is this born-again Christianity? Now, remember, this is the mid-1970s, um, and, and, and they just didn't know what to do. In fact, in fact Carter would eventually agree to an uh, a interview uh, by a reporter from Playboy magazine, of all places. And in that, in that, uh, in that interview, uh, Carter would confess to lusting in his heart after women. And that made him a laughing stock. I mean, uh, the press just made fun of him. It was crazy how they, they responded to that. Now, we hear that today, and it's kind of a quaint little story historically, but it, I'm trying to make a point, and here's my point. The secular press didn't understand what it means to be born again in 1976. I want to submit to you today, 40 what, seven years later, thereabout? Not only does our secular press, not only has our country become more and more secular and less and less Christian and have less and less understanding of that, but many in the church today have no clue what we mean when we talk about being born again. They are as puzzled by Carter's words as they are by Jesus' words to Nicodemus when he said, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And so today, I want to take up that question. And the question is simply this, what did Jesus mean? What does it mean to be born again? And, and as we seek to answer the question today, we're going to do so by looking at this rather lengthy text from John 11. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, this is not going to be a purely expository message. So do not get nervous and think I'm going to talk about all 42 verses that I read, or actually 44 verses that I read. But I am going to help us try to think about, from this story of Lazarus, what it means to be born again. Because this story is a story of life and death. It is a story of new life. I believe it illustrates for us what the Bible calls eternal life or the new birth. Now, young worshipers, if you're here this morning, I want you to think about and answer two questions as we get into the message today. And parents, as, as we say week by week here, engage your young people in, in conversation as we go through this, as they pick up the answers to these questions. Question number one, young worshipers, what had happened to Lazarus? What had happened to Lazarus that caused Jesus to come to his house? Something takes place in Lazarus' life that prompts the Messiah to come to his house. Even though, uh, even though we were told in the text, it was at his, a great danger to Jesus personally. Secondly, what did Jesus do that changed Lazarus' life? What did Jesus do that changed Lazarus' life. Those are the questions for our young worshipers. What happened that caused Lazarus to come, or caused Jesus to come to the home of Lazarus? And what did Jesus do that subsequently changed the life of Lazarus? Now, let me just give a little bit of background, and then we're going to jump right into the text together. Now, this was not the first time Jesus had been to Bethany and visited with this family. 
He had been there at least on one other occasion. We are told about that in Luke chapter 10. When he comes to the house, and we are introduced to Martha and Mary. And in that, in that text in Luke, Luke mentions both Martha and Mary, but does not mention Lazarus. Surely Lazarus was in the home at that time. He's just simply not mentioned by the gospel writer. But this was a place that Jesus was familiar with. So much so, he would be referred to as their friend and as loving all of them. So there was a relationship already previously set between this family and Christ. So how does this story of the raising of Lazarus answer this question, what does it mean to be born again? Well, I'm going to seek to answer that question in three parts this morning. Let me give you the three parts. These are my major headings for my message today. And we'll come back and look at each one of them in turn. First of all, we're going to see the sinner's condition described. We're asking the question, what does it mean to be born again? In this story, we'll see the sinner's condition described. Secondly, we'll see the Savior's deliverance demonstrated. The sinner's, the sinner's condition described, the Savior's deliverance demonstrated. And finally, we're going to see the church's responsibility displayed. And so now, let's begin at the beginning. Let's talk about the sinner's condition. Because it is described for us here in, the, in this text as we read about the story of Lazarus. Indeed, this story provides for us a picture of what it means to be lost to be unsaved, to be unregenerate. A lot of terms we use in the church to talk about this. To not be a follower of Jesus Christ. Like all of us, Lazarus was in need of life. He pictures the spiritual condition of every, every person who's ever been born. We are born spiritually dead. Physically alive, yet spiritually dead. Notice, notice two things about our friend Lazarus that is brought clear to us in this text. First of all, back in verse 14, Jesus plainly said, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. Now, we don't know what caused Lazarus' death. We, the text doesn't tell us. We have no idea. It would be pure supposition. I'm not even going to go there. Because it doesn't matter what killed him. It makes no difference, see, what was right with Lazarus. There was one thing wrong with him. He was dead. And friend, when you're dead, it doesn't matter what else is wrong. That's enough. He was, he was dead. Uh, as Jerry Clowers would say, he was graveyard dead. Dead, dead. Really dead. And it points to three spiritual truths for us this morning that I don't want you to miss. First of all, spiritual death... Spiritual death is the natural condition of every human being. Spiritual death is the natural condition of every human being. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In Colossians 2.13, he would write, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul, in both of these cases, are talking to people in the church, and he's saying, your former condition, in your natural state, you were spiritually dead. It is an inescapable fact. We were all dead in sin. Every one of us, every child that had ever born, every baby in the nursery, every toddler in our homes, we're all born spiritually dead. 
Friend, we are not sinners because we commit sin. We sin because we're sinners. Lazarus was dead. Secondly, it points to the fact that spiritual death means something. And it means that we are separated from God. The prophet Isaiah would say it this way in Isaiah 59 too, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you that He does not hear. The prophet Habakkuk would write these words in Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, You are pure eyes that you, uh, that, than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Because of our sin, we are separated from a holy God. There is a, there is a great gulf between us. We have both volitionally and intentionally broken the law of God, and our sin has brought a separation between us. Spiritual death is true. It's universal. Spiritual death separates us from God. And thirdly, spiritual death means that we cannot and will not trust God. Now this is important for you to understand. Not only does spiritual death come upon all of us in birth, not only does it separate us from God, but in that death it causes us, it affects us in such a way that we cannot and will not trust God. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul would write this. Now listen to the language here. The natural person, that is the person in their sin, the unregenerate person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you catch what Paul was saying here? Did you see Paul speaks both to our will and our ability? Notice what he says. We do not accept it. We do not accept it. That's our will. We do not accept it. We don't accept the things of God. Why? They're folly. They're foolishness to the lost man. But then he says, we're not able to understand them. That speaks to our ability. We do not understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And guess what? We're spiritually dead. We haven't the means to understand them. In Romans, Paul would emphasize this even more when he'd write this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. We have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see what the apostle is saying? He's saying because of our sin, we're not only separated from God, but like dead men cannot see, accept, understand, and understand. And we will not seek God either. We're dead. And because of our spiritual death, we're both unwilling and unable. Friend, Lazarus was dead. That means he was separated from the living. He was not lying in the grave hoping Jesus would come by someday so he could follow him. Lazarus wasn't laying there and said, Boy, if Jesus comes by today, I'm going to go follow him. No, you know why? Because he was dead. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, thinking about or pondering or, or contemplating how to live a better life. No, Lazarus was neither willing nor able to follow Jesus. To dwell among the living and dwell among the living because Lazarus was dead. There was just one thing wrong with him. Therefore, there was nothing right with him. He was dead. And like Lazarus, all of us are born dead in our sins. 
The second thing I want you to notice about our friend Lazarus that the text tells us about is not only was Lazarus dead, he was defiled. He was defiled. We're looking now at the sinner's condition. And the sinner's condition is that sinners are dead. and Lazarus was defiled. In verse 39, we read these words. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. The old King James translators, I love the King James translation here. It's a little bit funny. In the King James translation, the King James translators in in that English said this. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, he stinketh. Well, the ESV is a little more delicate than that. Lord, there'll be an older. Decay is set place. For he's been dead for four days. See, I want you to notice something about Jesus in resurrection. We're told in the Bible that Jesus raised three different people from the dead. He raised a little girl who'd been dead for a few moments. He raised a young man who'd been dead for a few hours. But he raised Lazarus who'd been dead for four days. Lazarus was different. Because decay and and decomposition had already set into his body. See, the Jews did not embalm the dead. They would use aromatic spices to temporarily mask the odor of decay. But after four days, the smell and the stench of an open grave and a rotting corpse would have overpowered the aroma of those spices. It was not a pleasant thought to roll back that stone in in the heart and the mind of that sister. The law had taught also that to come into contact with a dead body would make you unclean and unfit for worshiping in the temple. And so for Jesus to say, roll away the stone, was was an enormous ask. Lazarus' body was well beyond the hope of any human help. Nobody could help him. The bottom line, Lazarus was dead and death had permeated his entire being. And we're just like him. All of us spiritually are like Lazarus. We are defiled. Notice the scope of our defilement. Like Lazarus, our defilement has permeated our entire beings. Isaiah would express it this way when he'd write, We have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The prophet is telling us here that sin has affected every part of our being. So much so that even our good works, even the good works we seek to do, have been polluted by our sin. We are radically corrupt. The old old theologians used to use terminology like it's total depravity. Well, that... That, that's fine, except it's a bit confusing at times because what they were really expressing is it's not that we're as bad as we possibly could be, but that sin has polluted everything about us. So that even our good works are like filthy rags, to quote the prophet. Not only here do we see the scope of our defilement, but we see the source of it. Notice the source of our defilement. The psalmist says it this way, Psalmist David in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The source of our defilement is our sin nature that we are born with. Paul would say it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, my friend, because of our sin nature, we act out in sin. 
which in turn defiles us more, so that we continue in our sin in an ever-increasing cycle of sin and defilement. The scope of our defilement is it touches everything about us. The source of it is we are born in sin because of Adam. And the significance of that defilement is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. See, the acting out on sin, it, it, none of us escape it. Not one. I've often told people, if you don't believe in a sin nature, take a turn in the two-year-old preschool class. Some of you all are laughing because you've been there. I've, I've had the privilege of seeing two daughters grow up in my home. I'm now seeing the privilege of watching my, my grandchildren grow up in our home. And what a blessing that is. But I want to tell you something. Those little fellows come wired sinners. I never taught one to lie or cheat or be selfish. And they're all good at it. Why? Because that's the way we come into the world. That, that is where we are. So much so the proverb, the writer of Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Our sin kills us and defiles us and deceives us. And like Lazarus, our sin has contaminated our entire being and we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot raise ourselves up any more than Lazarus could raise himself up out of that grave that day. We are helpless and hopeless and doomed we need a Savior. Which brings me to my second point. The Savior's deliverance demonstrated. Now I want you to just suppose with me for a minute. I want you to take a little intellectual journey with me for just a minute here. So just stay with me for a minute. But I want, to, I want you to suppose that we were to come up on the grave of Lazarus today. It was to happen in modern times. And, and we were to turn to our culture, our society, our world and say, we've got a dead man here. How are we going to fix this? Well, you know, our world has solutions, right? Um, so I want, to, I want to introduce you to three doctors today. They're going to come alongside us and they're going to, uh, they're going to present us with a way of helping our friend Lazarus who's dead and decaying in the grave. The first doctor I want to introduce you to is Dr. Better Environment. Dr. Better Environment. Dr. Better Environment has a doctorate in sociology. He is a brilliant man. He's well studied. I believe he's a graduate perhaps of Harvard or Yale, one of the Ivy League school, schools. He believes that we can improve, if we just can improve Lazarus' environment, we can give him life. See, what Lazarus needs is to get out of this graveyard and get to a better place. And so what would Dr. Better Environment do? He would, he would give him a better school and better homes, better neighborhoods, more employment opportunities. He would even help Lazarus to have a better diet and perhaps improve his, his health, all in the hopes of giving him life. And friend, while none of those things are bad things, they don't have the power to give life. They don't have the power to change the heart of lost people. So we end, we end up with a better educated, healthier, and more prosperous sinner who will still have no hope. Okay, maybe Dr. Better Environment didn't answer. Let's go on. Let's find another doctor here. How about Dr. Feelgood? Dr. Feelgood has his doctorate in psychology. And, and uh, he's brilliant. He's a thinker. He believes that uh, that he can give uh, dead men life by improving the way they think about themselves. 
Helping them discover the life that's inside them already. Uh, he stands outside the tomb and he encourages Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, look inside. Find that inner happiness. Lazarus, you can do this. You can get up and come out. Come on, Lazarus. You can work through this. We're going to talk you through this situation. What foolishness. But that's what our world believes. It believes our problem is centered in our thinking that well, if we can just change the way people think about themselves, they'll be okay. Now, it's not wrong to encourage people to be happy or to examine themselves. But Dr. Feelgood's methods will only produce self-centered, self-absorbed sinners who have no hope. Last doctor. Dr. Clean Living. He has a doctorate in works-based religion. He comes to the grave of Lazarus and instructs him to have more faith. Lazarus, you just need to believe more. You need to have more faith. You, you need to live a, a more moral life. He, he says, quit being dead, Lazarus. Quit decaying. That's, that's foolishness. What are you doing? But he has no power to give him life. See, so many in our world today believe that if we can, we can change people by teaching them uh, to keep the rules and to be kinder and be more moral, even joining a church, the problem is people are spiritually dead. They're dead. It'd be like going to a graveyard and showing the people buried there what life people do. It won't help them. Because their problem is not simply moral. The problem is they're dead in their sins. And like Lazarus, there's just one thing wrong. And therefore nothing is right. We're dead. We're like Lazarus. We are all dead in our sins. But I want you to see the Savior's solution, the Lord's answer. Notice what Jesus does. Three things I want you to notice. Man, this is good. I've been waiting to get to this part all along. First of all, notice what Jesus does. Jesus employs the Word of God. How do I know that? Because Jesus is God. And He speaks the Word. Jesus employs the Word of God, the most powerful object in the universe. In fact, it was the Word of God that made the universe. He employs the Word of God. And I want you to notice three things about this Word. First of all, Jesus spoke a particular Word. He said in verse 43, Lazarus. Lazarus. In reality... Jesus sovereignly chose Lazarus. He called him by name. Jesus knew who Lazarus was and specifically and purposely called him out of death into life. Some theologians have, have, have said that perhaps had Jesus simply spoken the words, come forth, every grave in that area, within the sound of his voice would have opened. But Jesus chose one man that day to give life to. His name was Lazarus. The same is true when the Lord calls us from spiritual death to eternal life. See, in John we're told that Jesus knows His sheep. In John 10, 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and, and my own know me. He goes on in that same chapter to tell us that He calls His sheep by name and that His sheep know Him and follow Him. Listen to verses 27 and 28 of, of John 10. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, had Jesus simply said, come out, every grave and the sound of his voice was open. But that day, Jesus chose to give life to Lazarus, and he called his name. My friend, Jesus is not to be condemned for raising Lazarus, and only Lazarus that day. It was an act of great grace and brought great glory to God. It was a particular word. Secondly, it was a powerful word. I've already alluded to this. Just the words come out. It is this word of power. It is a life-giving word. In John 6.63, we read these, these words. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There is no power. Listen to me this morning. There is no power under heaven and on earth that can defeat the power of the word of God. Death could not hold Lazarus. And my friend, sin cannot hold you. It is a more powerful word. It is a life-giving word. It is also a faith-giving word. In Romans 10, we read these words. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When Jesus speaks, lives change. Sin is forgiven. Chains fall away. Doubters receive lives and rebels become worshipers. That's the word of God. But not only do we see Jesus Speaking a powerful word and a particular word, but it was an effectual word. By that, it sim- I simply mean it did what it was supposed to do. It performed what God intended. When Jesus speaks, lives change. The command of Jesus fulfilled its purpose. It gave life and produced obedience. The prophet Ezekiel saw this and wrote about it in Ezekiel 36 when he wrote these words, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. To carefully obey my rules. When the Lord by means of his spoken word. Transforms our dead nature into a living faith. We like Lazarus get up. Leave our old dead lives behind. And come and follow him. That's the power of the word. Lazarus was dead. He had no hope. There was no idea that Lazarus would come out of that grave until Jesus called his name and said, come out. And by the very word of God, he was given both the power, ability, and desire to follow Christ. Don't miss that. Because that same God, by his same word, is changing lives today through the same means. Hear the words of Christ today. In John 11, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha a question. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe this? My friend, you may be here this morning and you may not be a follower of Christ. You may be spiritually in the same condition our friend Lazarus was in that day Jesus visited his grave. But I want to ask you this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe that you're dead in your sin? That you have indeed disobeyed God and broken His law? Do you believe that the consequences of your sin uh, is that you are separated from God and rightfully under His judgment? Do you believe that you are helpless and hopeless like dead Lazarus to change your own situation? Friend, 
Do you believe that Christ alone can rescue you? That He lived a life without sin, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, rose from the dead on the third and appointed day, ascended to heaven, where he, he sits today interceding for us and will one day come again in power and judge this world. Are you this day by His grace and by the power of His Spirit turning from your sin and trusting in this Jesus and Him alone? If the answer to that question is yes, then I rejoice with you. But if you're not sure about that, if you'd, if you'd like to know more about what it means to follow this Jesus, what this, this new birth is really all about, we'd love to call, have a conversation with you about that today. We'd ask you to stay around a little while after the service. There'll be one of our elders in the room that Pastor mentioned earlier, Crossroads, as you exit the building on your right. And we would love, we would cherish the opportunity to just begin that conversation that would lead to your better understanding and, and, and prayerfully your faith in this resurrected Lord who's giving life to people even today. Allow me to look at our last point. We've, we've seen the sinner's condition. We've talked about uh, the Savior's uh, uh, deliverance. Now let's look at the church's responsibility put on display. You said, where's the church in this, Tim? I didn't, there's no, the word isn't even mentioned in this text. Well, if you know me well enough, you know I'm always finding the church. It's here. Let me show it to you, can I? Look at verse 44. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus, now watch this. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I want you to notice two things here very quickly, and then I'm going to give a little bit of application, and we'll be finished this morning, okay? Just hang with me a few more minutes. First of all, I want you to notice that when Lazarus came out of the grave, he still looked like a dead man. He had all the trappings, all the trappings of death. He was wrapped with those cloths they had wrapped him with, that had held those spices. His face was covered. His arms were bound, likely down by his side. I just imagine in my silly mind that, and when the grave opened and Lazarus flopped out of there, got on his feet and come waddling out because he couldn't walk. And Jesus looks at him and he, and he, and he looks at, at the people standing there and he says this. He said, unbind him and set him free. Now I want you to understand something here. Jesus has just by his words given life to a dead man. That's, that's pretty powerful, right? That same Jesus could have said, grave clothes, be gone! And they would have disappeared. No doubt in my mind about that. Absolutely no doubt in my mind about that. My goodness, he just raised him from the dead. He could, have, he could have changed him before he got out there. Right? Come on, get with me. But he didn't. Why did he not? Because he had a job for those who were there. He looked at them, the people witnessing this, among whom were Martha and Mary, the disciples, other believers. And he said to the, the believers that were there, unbind him and let him go. Friend, even though Lazarus was dead, he was still dealing with, what, with death. There were still things about him that reminded him, in fact, bound him to his old death, deadness. He was bound. 
He'd come forth. He was bound from head to foot. He couldn't walk. He couldn't speak. He was defeated. I mean, can you imagine trying to go through life like that? He was, he was alive, but he was both bound and defeated. What a picture of a new believer. What a picture of, of us when we are first born again, when we first receive the gift of eternal life. We have that life. It's real. It's genuine. Our, our spiritual hearts are beating. Uh, the blood of Christ is coursing through our, our spiritual bodies. We're, we're alive, but we're still bound. We're still bothered by the bindings of old sin. We're still bothered by the consequences of former sins. We, we still are visited by, by some of the things that our former life has caused in our life now. We, we, we still struggle with temptation and old habits. They haunt us. We're alive, but we're not free. We're alive, but unable to walk and follow Christ. We're alive, but we need help. And Jesus turns to the church, and He says to the church, unbind Him and let Him go. That day, Jesus employed those around that, that tomb who believed Him and trusted Him to remove the remnants of death and old nature from, from Lazarus. And today, He looks to the church and He says, that's your job. That's your job. When someone comes to me in faith, when I give new life to a sinner, come alongside them and help them get unbound. Help them get free. Show them how to walk. Teach them what it means to follow me. We call it discipleship. It is the privilege and responsibility of every believer, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons or Sunday school teachers, every believer to help fellow believers to grow into the likeness of Christ. Paul said in, in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is our calling. Discipleship is simply this. Don't make it complicated. Discipleship is simply helping someone fight sin and get closer to Jesus. It's helping get the grave clothes off. It's helping someone take one step closer to following Christ than they, had, they were the day before. Let me ask you this. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, and you know that, and you say, Tim, I know that I have new life in Christ Jesus. Well, who are you helping fight sin and follow Jesus? Who are you actively helping fight sin and follow Jesus? Well, I'm not a theologian, Tim. Well, guess what? Jesus didn't call theologians to do this. He called Christians to do it. We are surrounded by death in our world. Not just physically, but even more tragically, by spiritual death. And so I want to close where I started. I want to ask you a question. Are you born again? Have you, by God's grace, received this wonderful gift of life eternal? Again, if not, we would love to talk with you. And if you are born again, who are you helping to follow Jesus today? Or maybe I should ask the question this way. Who will you help follow Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the grace that you have lavished upon each of us, especially those of us who've heard you call our name. Thank you that there was a time in my life 
when you called my name. You called me to yourself out of my sin. Father, thank you for people. Faces are coming to my mind right now, Father. Men, women, who you've brought in my life over the years who have helped me follow Jesus. They didn't do it perfectly. They didn't do it inherently. But God, they did it faithfully. Raise up among us more believers and more disciples that we might, that we might bring glory to God. You said it to the disciples. This is happening for God's glory. Later you said to the sisters, I'm doing this for the glory of God. So Father, may that glory be made real in our lives as well. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.